What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh. I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. Today we are talking once again about Blue Jasmine in our mini-series about Kate's hmm, best performance. It's definitely the most loaded performance. My guest today is our first returning guest to the Sundays with Kate podcast, Jose Solis. Hello, Jose. Thank you for having me, Kate. Thank you for coming back. It's so exciting to have a returning guest. You were a great guest on our Talented Mr. Really podcast, and that's why you're our first returning guest. You and I actually saw Blue Jasmine together for the first time. Do you remember that? Yeah, because then we got really drunk at Martini. (laughs) (laughs) After, yeah, we had to celebrate with a um, a Stoli Martini with a twist of lemon. We had like four, though. (laughs) We have like no (laughs) self-control. We had a few, that's for sure. What we're going to talk about today is Blue Jasmine, but we're also going to talk about the Woody Allen women. Blue Jasmine belongs into this tradition of Woody Allen women, um, lots of other movies from Annie Hall to Bullets Over Broadway to Another Woman to Vicky Cristina Barcelona. But before we get into all that, tell me what you think about Blue Jasmine. Oh, wow. I mean, we saw it together that time and, like, we sounded like, I don't even know, like, teenagers who had just lost their virginity. (laughs) We were so excited. Like, it was like a second coming, in a way. Uh, Because I feel that up to then, I mean, most of the uh, 2000s had been very hit and miss for Woody. And, you know, although I, I love Woody Allen's work as a director and a writer, but most of his movies from the, the 21st century are pretty, you know, lame. They're pretty, like, they feel, like, lazy. Like, they feel like, you know, like, he was about to quit. Like, he was done. And then he had this, like, comeback with Midnight in Paris and then with Blue Jasmine that, I don't know, it made me feel, I think, like, probably all those people in the 70s when they got to see, like, Annie Hall and mm-hmm. Manhattan because it was, like, the Woody Renaissance. And... I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole, you know, because we're going to talk about that at some point. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, like, what I'm saying right now, I'm just talking about his work and I'm not thinking right now as a rational person about, you know, his personal life and the scandals that have surrounded him also. uh, I mean, what we can say about that is that we can agree that Woody Allen, there are a lot of signs that he is a terrible person and that he may have hurt a lot of women. And we are here to talk about his movies. Um, His movies, no matter what you think of him, and I think I, I don't think greatly of him, but I think his movies are very influential. And if you look at sort of his oeuvre from the 70s, which and from the 80s, which are some of the movies we're going to talk about today, they're very influential. And so many other filmmakers that we now know and love would not have given us what they've given us if they didn't see Woody Allen movies when they were growing up. He also had that eye for, uh, you know, like forgetting Meryl in Manhattan, for instance, and forgetting all this, like, actors to do, like, this tiny bits that in many ways become, uh, I would say, like, as important in their, you know, in their filmography. It's like, you know, like, I think 
Marilyn Manhattan is better than Marilyn Sophie's choice. But this is not a Meryl podcast, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to stop right now. Oh, you can talk about Meryl. We love her. Um, but let's talk about, let's start with Kate and Blue Jasmine. So, yes, this uh, Blue Jasmine is such a performance driven movie. And I remember, you know, when I first saw it for the first time, like my jaw was on the floor the whole time. I couldn't believe this, this actor that I have loved for so many years. And I knew that she is great. I could not believe how amazing she was in this movie and getting to give this very emotional performance, but also at the same time, a, a performance that is so dominant. I mean, Kate is always dominant in movies. She is a very dominant actor, but this... <laughs> she is. <laughs> but in this one, she just takes the reins of the movie and runs with it. And it's, frankly, a joy to behold. And, you know, I go back and forth what is my favorite performance of hers, but whenever I watch this movie, there is just no other answer. <laughs> when Blue Jasmine premiered, you had already seen her uh, as Blanche, right? I have seen her as Blanche on stage, yes. I don't think I've ever asked you how how seeing her do Blanche on stage, and obviously because Jasmine is like a version of Blanche, mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever asked you how the two compared. The difference is, what I loved about the Liv Ullman production is that because of Marlon Brando's force of performance, a streetcar is sort of remembered as a Stanley play. And what Liv and Kate did in that production is they made it a Blanche play again. Mm -hmm. So she is the dominant sort the dominant character in that play. Not that the performance is as the, is as dominant as it was in Blue Jasmine. She is more vulnerable and broken as Blanche because that was Blanche's while she's more brittle as Jasmine. You yes Jasmine is going through a crisis but at the same time she is somebody who has a lot of pride. She's somebody who has sharp edges. She's somebody who is com definitely not likable or sympathetic. And I think, to me, that was the main difference between what she did as Blanche and what she did as Jasmine. That's so interesting because, like, she, I mean, for all, like, the technical wonders of this performance in Blue Jasmine, I, I think that it's Kate's probably, like, most vulnerable performance. Because even, you know, even, like, in movies like uh, Little Fish which is like very raw emotionally. She's always like very uh, contained. I feel like she's always in control. And then Jasmine, I think it's the one time where I've seen her the most look like she was about to like lose control and like she was about to like not know what to do. When did you, while you were, when you watched Jasmine the first time, when was, when was the first time you felt that this, this is a great performance? This is something I'm gonna like. Tip, big boys. No, I mean, that's like halfway through the movie. I I think from the moment she opens her mouth and it's this like very like affected accent, like kind of like Catherine Hepburn needs, I don't know, uh, Michael Bloomberg <laughs> <laughs> needs like all this like New York socialites. And from the moment she opens her mouth, like it was like, I, I noticed something that you've always told me when you're, um, you know, talking about the impeccable Kate. And it's like, uh, her voice is like so interesting. And, and Jasmine, I, I don't know, like the moment she opened her mouth, I was like, holy fuck. I was like, I'm sold. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, um, she's an actor who uses her voice so well all the time. And, and, you know, here it's, it's rich with emotion, but it's broken. And then also the accent is perfect. It's a specific Upper East Side New York accent that you don't hear everywhere in New York City, but you definitely hear it in the hallways and apartments and um, 
opera house is the Jasmine Frequence, and she gets it so right. As usual, of course she does. <laughs> it, she's Kate Blanchett. I knew it from the beginning, like from... Because she's introduced blabbering on that plane, and she's just talking. And I'm like, if this movie is going to continue being like that, because that scene, there is another actor in the scene, but they're completely like, you don't remember anything about them except that Kate is talking. And I'm like, if, she, if this is going to continue being like this, I'm going to love this movie because it's going to be an all Kate movie. And it is an all Kate movie. Poor Ginger. Yeah. <laughs> so this sort of leads me to ask you about um, one of my questions is about the other actors in this movie. Kate, you know, we will talk more about her, but she's such a hurricane in this film, a good hurricane, a hurricane of emotion that sweeps us. But do you do you feel that she, the other actors were swept by her or where you or did you like some of the other performances? I like everyone in this movie. And I think that one of the things that they do so well and it's something that happens uh, very often in Woody Allen movies. And it's that when the actors know that there's, you know, that this woman can command the wind too, they move <laughs> and they let her command the wind, but they don't like vanish. Like they give like very, very, very good performances. Like, I mean, I think that uh, Sally Hawkins as Ginger was the, uh, the Stella to, to Kate's uh, Blanche. Does a very good job. She's like, she's so adorable. And there's like very like naive, way like I almost wanted to slap her she's so uh, I don't know full of love and kindness and then we see her dark edge and I think that everyone every character in this movie has that because who, who's the guy who plays uh, Ginger's ex-husband I always forget his name Andrew Dice Clay yeah that scene uh, where he becomes like the catalyst that like, he's the one who destroys basically mm -hmm. you know it's karma right because that like, she uh Jasmine's husband, Harge. No, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know what Alec Baldwin's name was. I don't remember anymore. We can just call him Alec Baldwin. I'll call him Harge. <laughs> Harge does something terrible to to uh, his sister-in-law and to her husband. And Andrew Dice Clay in that one moment near the end of the movie is just incredible. And Bobby Cannavale, I feel, was trying to play, you know, Stanley. He was for yeah. sure. Yes. And well, he got his wish because he's gonna play him in the summer. Ultra. <laughs> When your sister had all that money, she wanted nothing to do with you. Now that she's broke, all of a sudden she's moving in. She's not just broke. She's all screwed up. You'll be very happy to know that I lost every cent of my own money. Her husband was a slick operator. I was there a week. I knew the guy was hitting on a girlfriend. I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. You choose losers because that's what you think you deserve. And that's why you'll never have a better life. I really like Sally. I think Sally does stand away from the Hurricane of Kate in a lot of scenes. She gives an actually submissive work mm -hmm. because she's trying to stand away from her. But at the same time, when you look at her, at Sally looking at Kate, that's where the two performances gel for me mm -hmm. because she is both amazed and horrified and in awe and hates her sister and loves her and all of that sort of registers in her face. I'm not sort of a fan of her scenes with Louis C.K. or all of those scenes that are sort of like they try to make, you know, I'm just like, get me back to Kate, get me back to, to Jasmine. But, in, but I like their scenes together. I think the weak link here would be Peter Sarsgaard. Because I, I don't know, I mean, he's a fantastic actor, but I never understood what someone like Jasmine would see in him. He's so boring. Yeah, I think she just saw his checkbook right. and yeah, his security, house. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, security, yeah. yeah. So I was like, he is so boring. 
He's like Mayor Pete before Mayor Pete became like a, <laughs> a thing in the media. The, I think, you know, Woody is famous for not giving his actors the full script. Oh, yeah. So, and it's well known in that he only gave Kate and Sally the full script. So maybe Peter Sarsgaard just got his slides and didn't know what was happening. Because if you just get those scenes, you don't get any of the tragedy of Jasmine or anything that's happening in the movie. Because his scenes are only with her and it's sort of this love story slash web of lies that she puts around him. And I agree with you, his performance does not pop, that's he's, for sure. Yeah, he's just like very boring. What's the name of the kid who plays uh, Alec Baldwin's son? Well, the older one yeah. is Solo, which is old and Aaron Rich. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when, when we uh, saw the movie, wow, like seven years ago, that's insane. Time flies. Time does fly, yeah. And, like, I mentioned to you how much Alden looked like Ronan Farrow, remember? <laughs> yes. He looks like Ronan Farrow in the final scene. And I, I love about Jasmine, and I don't remember seeing many writers and many uh, critics talk about it, but I, Jasmine is, to me at least, you know, like, in the modern Allen era, the character that most becomes, like, the Woody Allen uh, surrogate. Because as he's getting older and as he's getting... Um, I guess more bitter <laughs> lonelier yeah he has that you know like melancholy and that it's not resentment it's more like a regret i would say and just from the opening scene in the plane where she's just like blabbering that's mm-hmm. like you know like classic woody this is a classic woody character yes but by the end you know there's always like all of the recent woody allen movies have this element of like sadness and loss and regret and in that scene when Kate goes to see her, uh, she was, he was her stepson, right? He was her stepson. Yeah. yeah. And he goes to, to, she goes to talk to him and he just freaking looks like Ronan Farrow so much. I found that scene so moving and I wonder what Kate, cause obviously Kate didn't talk about, cause people interrogated her about, mm-hmm. you know, the Woody scandal, remember? Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't talk about that cause she doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. But I wonder what playing that scene was like for her and if she saw that you know it's a parent trying to make amends with with a son who doesn't want them anymore yeah who they wronged yeah who they definitely wronged and hurt deeply i i like that i like your interpretation of that I wanted to ask you also, like, I love so many things about Kate as Jasmine. I love all the silences in the performance, like when she's about to lie. There's always a sort of a little bit of like, she's as if she's gathering the lie, trying to make it, which is sort of like a classic thing of liars. They always pause before they lie. And so I love that about it. That's one of the things I really love about the performance. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the gestures or tics that you love about Kate as Jasmine? Kate Blanchett is one of the most glamorous and one of the most photographed women in the world. And she, you know, you say it all the time, she poses like it's nobody's business, right? Like she invented posing. And in Jasmine, she looks ugly. And she lets herself look ugly. And, you know, not ugly in a shallow, like, you know, like, oh, she's not pretty, right? But she allows the character's monstrosity 
to come through in her face and you know the the tip big boys scene <laughs> yeah she you were telling me that she was uh praising joker uh at the golden globes right? yes yeah that scene was better joker than any <laughs> joaquin phoenix you know without the makeup her i remember like her face looks like it's melting yeah Mm -hmm. And, she, you know, like her eyes, she almost looks like a Picasso painting in that scene. Like, I don't know how her eyes are where her uh, cheeks, mm -hmm. you know, are supposed to be. And, like, her mouth, I don't know, it's it's magical. Uh, so I love what she does with her face because I think it's the most expressive in an almost uh, over-the-top way that she's uh, she's ever done. Yeah, and it is a collaboration with the makeup artist and the costume designer. I think more than it's always a collaboration with those departments for Kate in her performances because she re relies a lot on costumes and makeup and hair to create these characters, you know, like in Manifesto when she did Cinderella. You know, she always does these heightened characters. But I think this time she uses that collaboration with the makeup artist and the costume designer to chart the emotional pathos of this w woman. In that scene you're talking about, you see her face melting, and that is her as an actor, but also the makeup designer, adding the sweat, you know, the hair designer, making her hair look stringy. And it's not in just that scene, it's in all the scenes when she, especially when she starts breaking down, or in the scenes where she is drunk. You're always aware of like how drunk she is by the way she looks, or you know, how high she is on Xanax or whatever it is she's taking. And the look on the boys' faces <laughs> when she's telling them this. Yeah. One of the scenes I really like is at the beginning in the flashbacks mm -hmm. where they're just telling telling us about her life in New York before, before, you know, Hal was discovered. That's Alec Baldwin. Uh, before he was discovered. And you sort of, that's where... We talked a little bit about how she was lying mm -hmm. to Peter Sarsgaard later in the film. But in those scenes, she's lying to herself. And that's where you see her just sort of being serene. Outwardly, she's serene, but you can see in her eyes the fear and the lies. Because she, it, she knew what her husband was up to and that he was up to no good and stealing money. And she knew all of that. And in those scenes, you see it in her face that she knows... And those scenes are with her friends and, you know, so-called friends. And and you can tell that she knows and she's lying to herself more than anybody else. And I love... The scenes are not, like, very memorable. They're not one of the scenes that have a lot of the memorable catchphrases. But they are scenes that just build the character. And that's why I love her work there. There, I, there are also, like, scenes where uh, the movie talks about class. Which, like, American cinema doesn't like doing at all. Because, right? like, there's no class in America. It's Everyone's wealthy here um yeah <laughs> and, and i love that, that that you know like in a way it kind of like sets it acts like as a prequel almost to the horrors of the current administration and how all this like beautifully dressed high society women are backing up their asshole criminal husbands and just yeah. shutting up about it like i wonder how many blue jasmines there are in in washington right now in yeah. dc i mean jasmine is famously based on Bruce madoff who was one of the biggest liars to themselves of that era complicit. <laughs> yes and there are a lot of complicit women and, and men in in stories like this one of the things that i also love is that the performance and the movie charts the effects of an economic crisis on a person so this is a woman who is rich and had everything at her um, disposal and you can see 
when she gets to San Francisco, she has like the few things that she kept, the Hermes bag and the dress that she really loves and uh, the shoes that she loves and she keeps repeating them. And so again, with the costume designer, they worked on that and that's something that I love to sort of notice. And the other thing is just in the performance itself, she is always not to your point about class. She's always not in the scene with people because she doesn't like them. <laughs> I don't think she likes anyone. And it, it's very hard for an actor because actors, and you know, I asked Kate once at a Q&A for Carol about why she was so perfect in that movie. And her answer to me was that it was in the gaze at Rooney. And that's why they were able to act off of each other because they were looking into each other's eyes. But here she looks at nobody's eyes. Jasmine is always in her head. And so I was just, I, you know, I wish now I could ask Kate, how did she manage to be so formidable when she never looks into any of the other actors' eyes? You know what's so interesting that just like listening to you say that right now, I realized for the first time that uh, the movie literally starts with her in the skies and it ends with her sitting on a bench at a park. Like, it's just, you know, the entire movie is that plane crash. Mm -hmm. I love Woody. (laughs) (laughs) I love Blue Jasmine. I think it's an amazing, fantastic movie. But also a large part of that is because of this fantastic performance. Yes. Hal and Harge. Are there any other like Harry's? She always has husbands, I don't know. <laughs> I can't off the top of my head right now remember her husband's you need to name. Know all of this. You know, we watched this movie together, I remember. We saw it several times. We saw this movie opening night at the Angelica, which was a lot of fun. We went after Had. Stoli Martinis, and then a week later, we went back. Remember that? Yes, we went. Because we hadn't stopped drinking since this. <laughs> you know, we had been drinking for a week, and we were like, okay, we're coming down from the booze. Let's go watch the movie again. Can you imagine if we had been drinking for a week? The thing that made us return a week later, the next Friday after it opened, is because this movie is so watchable. It is about a woman in crisis. It's not a happy ending. Jasmine is not sympathetic. It's not somebody you want to spend time with because if this is some if this was someone in real life, you would want to look away, just like that woman sitting next to her at the bench at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. because there is nothing you can do to help her. So you want to look away. But yet somehow this movie is very watchable. You know when it's it's on Netflix now. I have watched it several times. I sometimes just put it on because I just want to see the performance. Why do you think it's so watchable? It's obviously because of Kate, but also the uh, the script is one of Woody's finest ever. You know, he does this thing where he, uh, you know, he wears all his references on his sleeve, right? Like, you know, he can't hide them. And everyone knows this is a streetcar. He doesn't try to hide it. Uh, he doesn't pretend that he's reinventing streetcar. But because he adores the structure so much, he allows himself the liberty to play and give this character his dialogues. I mean, tip big boys, like, we started quoting that movie, like, <laughs> within like the five minutes after we had left mm-hmm. the Angelica. Yep. And I think it's one of the most quotable movies uh, of the decade probably. And definitely one of the most quotable movies in Woody's uh, career. Yeah. You know, everything from her drink order 
to the uh Stoli Martini with a twist of lemon. What's the thing with with the dentist? He's trying I forgot, like it's one of those like cute woody things like we're just trying to uh let's make love. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is some retro language. Um so crazy. I remember, isn't she reading a book about computers or something like that? Well, yes. One of the plots is that she is trying to learn computers, which is one of the most unbelievable things ever. Obviously, I love when she says, I saw you, Erica. That scene is a masterclass because that scene is the thing that we're talking about earlier, right? It's Kate being in a scene with another actor and not looking at them at all because she is in this whole dimension where she's remembering this story about this woman erica and it's also a great scene for sally because we get to know the extent of how crazy or off jasmine is by the horrified look on sally hawkins's face Mm -hmm. and when she says i saw you erica but it's also very funny it's tragic and horrifying but very funny and i have said i saw you erica to people do they know what you're talking about? <laughs> I think if they know me, they know. <laughs> I'm always like, when people are always talking about Sally Hawkins and the fish monster from The Shape of Water, I'm like, she already faced the worst monster of them all with Kate. Jasmine French. Yeah. Another thing that, this I don't say this in real life, but another sort of line that I really love, and this is a meme or um, a gif that I use a lot, which is, what does this stupidity even mean? Which is always works like, you know, especially when somebody's saying some stupid political thing, and then you can just send them Kate saying to Hal, what does this stupidity even mean? Say it, girl. Say it to everyone. They deserve it. Besides the big boys, do you have any favorites? With the quotes? Oh, God, I don't know, because, like... Every, you know, I think Tip Big Boys is like the one this week. But probably if you ask me next week, I would choose something else. I always wanted to do something with my life. You know, I had energy. I didn't just shop and lunch and go to matinees. You know, I ran charities for poor people. Ran, you know, raised money for museums and schools. You know, with wealth comes responsibilities. I wasn't just some mindless consumer like so many of my so-called friends. Though I won't say I dislike buying pretty clothes. Tip big, boys. Tip big because you get good service and they count on tips. You know, someday when you come into great wealth, you must remember to be generous. Another one that I really love, but it's something that it's such an offhand one when her friend in San Francisco invites her to the party where she meets Peter Sarsgaard. You know, she says, I haven't shown my face socially in so long. And that's another one that's really, really great. That's so great. That was me in January. <laughs> well, it's February now. Are you showing your face? I mean, here I am. Here I am. <laughs> yeah, here I am. So we love this movie. I personally think it's, if not the best performance of the decade that just ended. It's definitely one of the best performances of the decade that just ended. Where do you stand on that? Do you, is it in your top performances? And what other performances does it remind you of? I mean, when you're talking about the best performance of the decade, of the decade like obviously I'm thinking Eddie Redmayne, Matthew McConaughey. Okay, no, okay. Uh, I, I don't think... Uh, I hadn't thought about that, you know, about the best performances of the decade, but certainly Kate would be up there. It is a monumental performance, and it was the kind of thing that she just swallows that movie whole. And, you know, not a, I'm not a fan at all of her uh, 
Elizabeth the Golden Age mm. acting because she, but also like you know it's not a very good movie, but it's kind of like the same performance in a way like she swallows everything you know she eats everything like this like giant Pac-Man kind of creature, but it works so well here, and it's because you know she could have also just tried to emulate uh, Vivian Lee in Streetcar right or she could have tried to play, you know she could have tried. Uh, borrowing elements from performances that have borrowed elements from Blanche Dubois, but she does something completely uh, her own and completely original. And even people who don't like uh, the movie, you know, it's undeniable how, how powerful she is. So I don't know, probably rounding up, you know, somewhere in my top five would also be Kate and Carol. Mm. And I'm not, I'm not just pandering to you right now <laughs> <laughs> oh my god marion in two days one night yeah that's a, a fantastic performance from cotillard absolutely i agree with that one i think marion in rust and bone is also amazing and Emmanuel Riva in a more there we yeah. go Yes. Top five. Um, <laughs> I also think of Natalie Portman in Black Swan. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's another great one. I mean, if if we look at the Oscar-winning performances, it's definitely Kate, without a doubt. Who else oh. won? Well, Natalie won, and right, yeah, yeah, and Jennifer Lawrence and Julianne Moore. There's been some good winners, if not for the performances. I definitely love most of the actresses who won this decade. And of course, Kate gave a great speech when she won. I'm so very proud that Blue Jasmine uh, stayed in the cinemas for as long as it did, and to the audiences who went to see it, and perhaps those of us in the industry who are still foolishly clinging to the idea that, uh, that female films with women at the center are niche uh, experiences. They are not. Audiences want to see them, and in fact, they earn money. So... <laughs> the world is round, people! <laughs> You are listening to one of three episodes about Blue Jasmine on Sundays with Kate. Three episodes, three guests, three perspectives. In part one, we discuss Kate Blanchett as the real auteur of Blue Jasmine and the many ways her performance makes her the author of the film. In part two, we talk about the similarities to Tennessee Williams, a streetcar named Desire, the character of Blanche Dubois, clearly the blueprint for Jasmine, the many actresses who played Blanche or were inspired by her, from the women in Pedro Almodovar's movies to Jenna Rollins in Woman Under the Influence to most recently Carrie Mulligan in Wildlife. These episodes are now available wherever you listen to podcasts or on sundayswithkate.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review. Now back to Sundays with Kate. So let's talk a little bit about the tradition of this performance. So Woody Allen has or had a reputation for being a woman's director, which really when you look at his output, sometimes it's really surprising to me that that was his reputation for a long time because in his early movies, he was so much part of his movies, like his movie, he was in them as an actor and he was in them as an actor as himself. And then when he grew older, and he had other people basically play him. And the movies were mostly about that character, the Woody or the Woody stand-in. I think his reputation became to that because of Annie Hall. Mm -hmm. Annie Hall is an amazing film. 
beautiful performance by Diane Keaton. It was a character inspired by Keaton herself. And it's such a beautifully drawn performance from her, but it's also so funny. And the way she looked and she dressed, it was iconic and memorable. And people still talk about Annie Hall as one of the best comedies ever. And, and I think we have to thank Annie Hall for that reputation of Alan's. Completely. And also, uh, I don't know if Dan Keaton should thank her or like loathe her because like also, you know, she was never, she's always, she she became Annie Hall. Like, mm-hmm. you know, even in Something's Gonna Give, like other other performances, like she's basically a variation of Annie Hall. Yeah. And Kate, fortunately, you know, doesn't have that. But she, uh... oh, now it sounds like I'm pantering too, so I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. No, but Kay doesn't have that. She doesn't have, you know, that, that shtick. While, I mean, God bless Annie Hall, and it's a perfect performance. But yeah, you know, like, even Diane Keaton in the world uh, moves like that and sounds like that. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's the sort of the collaboration, right? So we, when when we talk sometimes, like, one in the previous episode of this, we talked about the actor as the auteur, and we, thought, we talked about how Kate is the auteur of Blue Jasmine as much as Woody Allen is, and I think... Diane Keaton is as much as the auteur of Annie Hall as Woody Allen is. Because yes, he wrote it. Yes, he directed it. But her performance is what you talk about. And it was a performance. She was his girlfriend at the time. It was a character that was inspired by her and her family. And the situations in it were situations that I assume were inspired by her life. Sort of what Pedro Almodovar calls autofiction. So definitely Diane Keaton is the auteur of Annie Hall. Hi. 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 Oh, hi. Hi. Well, bye. <laughs> you, you play very well. Oh, yeah? So do you. Oh, God, what a, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, you say it, you play well, and then right away, I have to say you play well. Oh, oh, God, Annie. Well, oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah. And there's something that I find so interesting also that, especially in recent years, besides Jasmine, which is like dark, witty, but he also gave uh, Emma Stone the opportunity to play the witty surrogate in uh, that uh, Magic in the Moonlight movie and mm. also in Irrational Man, which I think is so underrated and so good. Did we see that together also? We did see that together, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. Like, I like both Emma and Joaquin in it. Yeah, and Emma, it's not Joaquin who plays Woody, but Emma. And I find that, I don't know, like, there's something fascinating about how he's putting himself in women. Tell me why you think Emma is the Woody stand-in in in Irrational Man. Because she's the the one who's, like, you know, the very uh, neurotic one, the clumsy one, the one who has all these conspiracy theories about Joaquin. And also she manages to make herself very, like, dorky and very, like, dim-witted. And Emma Stone is, you know, one of those actors who always shows her intelligence. She's so smart. Mm-hmm. And those eyes always show, you know, her intelligence. And in this movie, she's just like a Reddit kind of creature, you know, like just like conspiracy theories and like fear. So I think that people went into Rational Men thinking that it was going to be Joaquin. But I was like, holy fuck, it's Emma Stone who's playing Woody. And she's so good at playing Woody also. Yeah. Like she wore the glasses and everything. She does, she does. <laughs> now, now that you mention it, I can see it. And I definitely now 
want to see a rational man again, which is not something that I thought I would want to. You know, Woody Allen has written all these characters for women, but he has also written some misogynist characters. Like if you look at the Mariel Hemingway character in Manhattan, Manhattan is a great movie. It's an inspiration. It's a movie that I think was an inspiration to a lot of filmmakers. It was an inspiration to me as somebody who was, you know, growing up. Um, I saw it when I was very young and it sort of represented to me like New York and life. It just represented to me like, you know, the life that I have now here in New York. And this is so Woody is is not only inspirational to because he chronicled New York, which is the cultural capital of the world in his movies, not only was influential to filmmakers, but just to people who wanted to have sort of a cultural life in the city. But it also that movie, like when you see it today, that character of that 17 year old girl who is taken advantage of by this older man. It just doesn't sit right. So he was always a creep, is what I'm trying to say. Always was. And always will be. And I guess in the 70s and 80s, people forgave his creepiness, but no more. And that's good. But let's talk about some other actresses who... I mean, Diane Weist, you think of her, one of the most brilliant comic actresses. I think of her in Hannah and Her Sisters. But I also think of her as Helen St. Clair in Bullets Over Broadway, which is so funny. I mean, that don't speak scene where she just completely obliterates Joan Cusack off the screen and you can't help but fall in love. And she has that deeper voice in that movie, which you've never heard Diane Weist like. It's such a beautiful performance. It's so crazy. But I, I, I want to express... Don't the... speak. Things that I want to tell don't you. When speak. We first met, no, I was no, no, don't speak. We ordered, Please don't speak. Please don't speak. No, 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 go. Go, gentle Scorpio, go. Your Pisces wishes you every happy return. Just one. Don't speak. I think that she, in many ways, you know, is in that Jasmine tradition of like theatrical characters mm-hmm. in Woody movies. Which is why it makes me kind of sad that I don't think, has Woody Allen ever had a show on Broadway? Well, Bullets Over Broadway was on Broadway. But I mean, you know, like an original uh, Woody uh, script. I don't think so, I no. I don't think so, right? Yeah. I mean, he did a lot of stand-up at the beginning of his yeah. career, but I don't think he's ever had a proper show on Broadway. I thought that Kate Winslet in Wonder Wheel was extraordinary. But because she was, you know, drowned by the woodiness of the mm-hmm. movie and mm-hmm. by the woodiness of the media and by Ronan Farrow and by all those things which I'm not saying are wrong but even like I think that we should be talking more about Kate Winslet in, in Wonder Wheel because it was one of those performances that did the Golden Globes even nominate her? Mm. Not even they nominated her, No, right? yeah. And they nominate everyone. Yeah. I think that movie just came out at the time when the world was just done with Woody. And also it came out in the shadow of Blue Jasmine. And Blue Jasmine was such a phenomenal success, box office, awards-wise. Kate was really loaded. Everybody loved that performance. And there are a lot of similarities between Blue Jasmine and Wonder Wheel. It is, there are two movies about a woman in crisis by the same director, by actresses whose first name is Kate. So (laughs) there is a lot of... Similarities between them, and I think Winslet suffered because she was just in the shadow of Blanchett. Even if the world was ready for one more Woody, I, maybe it just wasn't meant to happen. Okay. 
Uh, but somebody who got a lot of accolades is Penelope Cruz in the Cristina Barcelona, which is another of similar to Helen St. Clair in that she is not the center of the movie, but she is the one you leave the movie thinking about. She's like a really black hole. <laughs> she is. Like, do you even remember Rebecca Hall or... Um, ScarJo. ScarJo. ScarJo was in this? <laughs> yeah. Truly, I mean, ScarJo was in that scene where uh, Penelope Cruz talking, talks about what a genius she is, which is the comic highlight of the movie. But no one even remembers any of the other actors, even Javier Bardem, who was sort of like the Woody stand-in in that story. Yeah, no one. That was just a Penelope movie. It is. It, it's brilliant. And she, I think, brings something that the other Woody women haven't brought, which is sexiness. Penelope Cruz cannot help but be sexy. But this is, and this is where you sort of go back to that, who is the auteur of this? Is it the writer, director, or is it the actor? Because I haven't seen a woman as sexy as Penelope Cruz in any other Woody Allen movie. Or a performance as sexy as Penelope Cruz in any other Woody well, Allen what movie. What about Maureen Stapleton in <laughs> No, uh, yeah, I'm just kidding. Ask him, ask him. He stole everything from me. His whole style. She likes to make up these stories. Juan Antonio, your whole way of seeing is mine. I'm not saying that you were not influential. Influential? Yes. Influential. Influ yes, influential, but, I'm, but to say that I stole your style... Hipócrita. To say that I stole your style is too delusional. Uh, she always had problems with reality, and I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get angry. Okay, what did they say in art school? They said I was a genius, right? I'm always, I always encourage your talent. Not talent. I'm not talking about talent. I said genius. Genius. Uh, but, you know, since we're talking about the, 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 the Woody uh, women, it's really hard for me to talk about Jasmine, to think about Jasmine, and not think of uh, Jasmine French as a spiritual sibling in many ways to Cecilia from The Purple Rose of Cairo. Because mm. they're both movies about women surviving an economic depression, women who lose everything, and who are living in a country where everyone has lost everything. And they're both women who are um, given to fantasy. Yes, completely. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And even the last scene in uh, Cairo is Mia Farrow sitting in the movie theater, and she Woody shoots her almost in the same way that he shoots uh, Jasmine. You know, they're just women staring onto the screen of like eternity in a way and obviously there's a little bit more he's a little bit kinder i think he's not unkind to jasmine though but he's a little bit kinder there's more hope in cairo mm -hmm. although they are both those last uh shots in jasmine and cairo are so heartbreaking because mm -hmm. these women have lost their minds what are you doing here tom what's the matter with you you're acting so peculiar tom no no i'm I'm not Tom. I'm Gil Shepard. I play Tom. What? How do you know Tom? You're Gil... Oh, my God, I don't believe it. You're Gil Shepard. I've seen you in lots of movies. Yeah, where's Tom? Oh, Broadway Bachelors, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, you know... And Honeymoon in Haiti? Done about Haiti. six. You were scream. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where's Tom? Why? Well, he's my character. I created him. But didn't the man who wrote the movie do that? Yes, technically. <laughs> But I made him live. I fleshed him out. You, you did a wonderful job. He's adorable. I'm glad you brought the purple, purple, 
Rose of Cairo because that is a movie that's also, you know, it's interiors is Bergman and I think that was his Fellini movie. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous and it is Mia Farrow who was his muse for and made so many movies with him. That's definitely the movie that showcases her the best and it is her best performance. Just luminous in that movie. But I think if we are talking about Blue Jasmine and sort of like which one in the Woody Women is closest to Jasmine, I would say Eve in Interiors. It's another wife who's suffering from the dissolution of her marriage and she is depressed, she is not functioning socially, and she also faces a tragic ending similar to Jasmine. Jasmine, and sorry if I'm repeating this because I said it in the previous episode, that bench at the end of Blue Jasmine is her coffin. I don't think she ever leaves it. That's so sad and she's so pretty. Yeah. So Geraldine Page in Interiors. And it, it is a performance that she is not in as much of that movie as, as I thought. You know, I've seen it a while ago and I was I went back to just see scenes from it. And she's not in as much of it as I thought I remembered. But it's again, it's such a dominant performance in Interiors that that's the one you leave with. Even though the movie goes on to tell the story of her daughters played by Mary Beth Herrett and Diane Keaton. And Maureen Stapleton's kind of like Ginger, right? Yeah, yes. Maureen Stapleton <laughs> is a, Ginger. A she is the id to her, yeah. yeah. She's the other one. Ginger. Yeah, I love I love Geraldine Page in Interiors. And Kate, when she started, she has been sort of compared a little bit to Judy Davis because they're both Australian. They have that sort of same temperament of being big actors and Judy Davis is also wonderful in Husbands and Wives mm -hmm. and again that's a movie where Judy Davis that movie is about Woody and his ma uh, marriage to Mia but again you leave with Judy Davis as their friend who is sort of brittle and dissatisfied and mad at everyone and can't orgasm and <laughs> it's such a funny funny performance Judy Davis is amazing in Husbands and Wives about the foxes. <laughs> yes, that's a good one. That's so insane. I thought it was an, it was an experiment. I, I didn't think it was final. I didn't realize you were having an affair. Listen, if you're having some kind of personal thing... Really? I'm okay. I, I, I don't really think I can do this. I'm feeling upset. What are you upset about? Woman gets to be over a certain age, it becomes a different ball game. Oh, no, no. Don't no, defend no. your sex. It's true. Um, so for you, you mentioned Cecilia in The Purple Rose of Cairo, and we talked about interiors and about um, husbands and wife. What is the performance that you think is most linked to Jasmine in your mind of all these woody women? Definitely Cecilia. Like, uh, and if, if, if I like keep pushing my theory that Jasmine is in some sort of way, like Woody's attempt to apologize or to try to like understand the fucking mess he created for Mia Farrow and her and his son, I think that uh, it makes total sense that, you know, he men are cowards, straight men are cowards, and it would make total sense that he would send the woman, he would send the mother to try to apologize to the son that he wronged. So for me, uh, yeah, Jasmine and Cecilia are, they might even be uh, relatives for all we know, right? Because we don't really know anything about Jasmine. We do not. Jasmine Jen made up her whole history, yeah. <laughs> You know, we talked a lot about Woody Allen movies, about how influential he is. He's influential. Like, can you imagine Noah Baumbach, for instance, without Woody? 
you know, that's that's just that's one of the reasons why we're talking about and talking about him is complicated. We are not definitely pro Woody or, you know, condoning his many alleged crimes. And I think the best as I was researching this episode, one of the quotes that I really that I really like is one that Emily Nossabaum, who was the TV critic for The New Yorker, and is a wonderful writer. And she gave that in an interview to Terry Gross and NPR. And she's somebody who has talked a lot in articles and in this last book of hers about how influential Woody Allen was to her growing up and how she wanted to be a cultural writer because of his work. And I love what she said. She says, I think Woody Allen is a criminal. But I still think about and might watch his old films. And that is sort of how I feel too. Amen. Let's go back to the star of this podcast, Kate Blanchett. We have talked about her a lot. We love Kate. We love her in Blue Jasmine. In 2013, she makes Blue Jasmine. She's loaded. People love it. It was a comeback for her of sorts because she hasn't made a movie in a while. She was doing theater. She is back to being a movie star and she wins an Oscar. She is at the top. She follows that with a collaboration with a director she loves in Todd Haynes with Carol. That not only is a successful movie, I'm not talking about box office, but Carol is a cultural phenomenon. It's a movie that people love so much and talk about all the time. So this is sort of like at the height of her career. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think of her output post Carol? The house with the clocks on the walls, you mean? <laughs> that masterpiece? Ocean's 8. Uh, you know, things, I, I just, it's it's definitely, she hasn't done anything at, at the heights of those two. Was Manifesto before Carol? No, that was after. That was that. Well, I mean, I, I like Manifesto, but, but okay. also, like, how do you top those? I mean, yes, it's very hard to top those yeah. two movies. And I remember this um, speech that she gave when she was honored for Carol in some festival, and... She basically said, you know, Todd Haynes, Phyllis, um, you, Rooney, you gave me this amazing opportunity. And frankly, I don't know what to do next. And I think she's just still looking. She can open like a flower shop or like start a cafe or just like run her theater. Because also, because uh, you haven't talked about this on this episode, but also the uh, Blue Jasmine press tour gave us my favorite Kate Book of all time, that pink Balenciaga, that all those like silly mortals kept saying made her look like a lampshade. Yes. And I'm like, okay, sit down and like yeah. learn. Like she pulled, didn't she pull that ad from like the archives? Yeah, so of Balenciaga, yeah. yeah. I'm like, yeah. holy fuck, it was incredible. And then with Carol, she gave us like that, not, that other, uh, that Jill moment. Uh, in in Cannes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you know, she also did her best looks ever. Like, I mean, one of the things that somebody who has loved Kate for so long about Blue Jasmine and about her just being loaded everywhere from critics, from audiences, from awards bodies is just getting to watch her receive <laughs> the accolades that I've been giving her in my heart for two decades. And in your journal. <laughs> like, Mrs. Kate Manchin. <laughs> um, oh, and she's amazing. She's somebody who, like, you know, when... When she gives a speech or she appears on TV as herself, she's funny, she's erudite, she's somebody who you like to watch. Is that when she gave her The World is Round? Yes, The World is Round People is her Oscar speech for Blue Jasmine. Her speech. What yeah. was her uh, SAG speech about? Um, her SAG speech was, um, she was... She was like jacking off the SAG speech. Yeah, she like, was, yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> and she talked about Judy Garland and barbiturates at 
the Golden Globes because I think she was um, a little drunk. She said she's that. been plied with vodka like Judy Garland was plied with barbiturates. Oh, yeah, Is that when she wore that black lace dress? Yes, the Armani. God, I'm so gay sometimes. Okay. Yes, I think we're both very gay and we just told the whole world how gay we are. We remember exactly what Kate was wearing. We are currently drinking our tea with our pinkies. Yeah. And just to close this episode, one final question. Have your thoughts about Kate changed throughout the years? Because I think people who maybe don't follow, I like to ask this question because people who don't follow her as closely as I sort of like, she she dips and she leaves. She's not somebody who's always omnipresent in the culture. Like she takes time off. She does thing, other things. She's not always in every movie. You know, she, is that one of your Julianne Moore digs? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of people who work a lot, but Kate is not one of them. So I just wanted to ask you, has your opinion of her changed throughout the years? Uh, no, I don't think so. Except for like the uh, the very silly childhood uh, rivalry that I talked about when I first discussed it. It's like you know, like my dad and I had this like Gwyneth versus Kate thing going on. But no, Kate Blanchett is brilliant, and even you know she's one of those artists who is always oh you know what she did she did that uh, documentary now thing. Documentary now, yeah, yeah which is a brilliant yeah. half hour of. Comic half okay, hour. So we have like something great at their Carol. Yes. Anyway, no, Kate is one of those artists who I will go see everything she's in because she's always so interesting. And she, uh, you know, even when she did that Thor movie, like it was so much fun. Like she put so much fun into it. And no, my opinion, you know, if anything, like my my awe of of her talent has just kept growing because I even loved her in the present, which not even you did. Yeah, I didn't. I I loved her. I just didn't think that show was great. Yeah, like, um, yeah, you know, like just like watching her dance on top of a table. Yeah, with, like reckless abandon. I was like, holy <laughs> fuck, she's so like sexy. She's very sexy in the present. Yes. So, so if you haven't seen the present on Broadway or in Australia, I am sorry. It was Kate's sexiest performance. Gone. So Jose, I think it's time now for us to go and get our Stoli martinis with a twist of lemon. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and your work? Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jose Solis Mayen, and I post everything that I write about. And remember to tip big boys. And you can find me on Twitter at me underscore says and find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. And until next time, thank you for listening.